0: We'll turn to Mark 10. Our message, and this is the one I gave Gary, but you have to admit husbands and wives is kind of a bland title for a sermon. I've retitled it. It's now entitled Happily Ever After. (laughs) So Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word and pray that you would uh, allow us to focus on this, to learn much from it, and to be guided into the future by the wisdom of it. We give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. This is a topical message, and it was really difficult selecting a text. That's part of the reason I didn't even select the title until after I had the text. And uh, I'd pretty much advise everybody that produces sermons not to do topical messages. Uh, But, you know, sometimes you just feel like you have to, and yet it does require more work, and there is the potential, I think there's greater potential for error. Because you end up rummaging around in the Word, looking for places that prove your points. So that's very scary. It isn't something that you should do unless you feel that you're absolutely led to do it. So, the Pharisees came, testing Jesus concerning divorce. And earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he had already commented on this topic He'd spoken about adultery of the heart, if you remember, and immediately following that, he said this, and let me flip back to Matthew 5, and so he said in verses 31 to 32, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So now, he had already taught on this topic, and here they are hitting him up again on the very same topic. And so they obviously wanted to try to trick him. This in Mark 10 as well as uh, Matthew 19 in the parallel passage on this uh, matter of marriage and divorce Uh, Jesus uh, says much the same thing, but the parallel passages are always very interesting. They always give you a little bit more information. Both of them talk about the testing, but in Matthew, it also has this little phrase. Uh, It says, Can a man divorce his wife for just any reason? And so you could see the flippancy with which the question was asked. Can a man divorce his wife for just any reason? I believe who was coming to him were the more conservatives, which is kind of interesting because Jesus ends up uh, not really, you know, Jesus, it's kind of hard to pin him down sometimes. Even though he identifies with a lot of what you said, he doesn't want to get pulled into the battles that you want to engage in. You want to use something, some piece of truth to bludgeon your opponent with. Jesus didn't get uh, caught up in that very easily. So there were two schools of thought And the text that we're referring to, the one that they quote, is from Deuteronomy 24. And let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. "'When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house,' When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So the rule here is that if some man divorces his wife, gives her this writ of divorce, and she goes off, he can never bring her back to his home. Uh, he, he, she goes off, marries another uh, man, and returns. He can't remarry her. Now, if she has not married some other man, if there's been no remarrying, then that that marriage can be restored, just like we now attempt to restore marriages. When a man and a wife divorce now, provided there is no remarriage, we want them back together, if at all possible. And so that is obviously biblical. And Jesus is uh, reflecting on this when he comments on this. So now, why is it that they're asking him this question? So he's the one that said, what did Moses command you? And then they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And then Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, he allowed this. So see, he didn't want Moses, and obviously God, did not want man so treating or mistreating women that the woman then is not marriageable. It was important for her to be able to marry. And so, if a man was going to essentially abandon his wife, dismiss her, and send her out, he had to do it with this writ of divorce, such that she could show that she was free from the responsibility to be that man's wife. And elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, Paul uses that as an illustration, that if a woman is bound to a man in marriage, and yet he dies, then she's free, and then she's free to marry in the Lord. So now, There are these two schools of thought concerning this text in Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. So there are two phrases there I'm going to comment on. The man has found some uncleanness in her. This is the conservative school. This is saying that she has acted without fidelity she's been unfaithful to him. But the more liberal school emphasizes she finds no favor in his eyes. So the conservatives of Christ's day, and I think one of them was here asking Christ this question, were saying the only reason that a man could dismiss his wife was for unfaithfulness. And then it must be accompanied by this writ of divorce. But the liberals were saying no. A man can divorce his wife if she finds no favor in his eyes, which means if he burns the dinner one too many times, she's out of here. Here's, here's the divorce writ. I've got a stack of them you know, ready for the next wives that I might have, have the misfortune of marrying me. So see, that was the, the context in which this question was being asked. I believe this conservative man was just looking for Jesus to support him. So what does Jesus do, though? That's the interesting part. See, he'd already brought up in the Sermon on the Mount what Moses had said in Deuteronomy 24, but now he says something different. He said, what did Moses command you? And they share it. Because of the hardness of your heart, you have this precept. From the beginning of the creation, God made the male and female. So he goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 to show that what Moses had allowed for was only due to your sin, your rampant sin. And and God was just protecting those poor wives that could be dismissed by their husbands without sufficient cause biblically and yet then be essentially unmarriageable because they're dead to all the other men out there because they're still attached legally to this other man. So Jesus says, for this reason, let not man separate what what God has joined together. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not men separate. Jesus adds this as an emphasis to both these conservatives and the liberals that you are treating marriage too lightly. Now, there is this oneness that Jesus refers to, that is Genesis refers to, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, they are one. Now, my question to you is, what produces this oneness? Is it marriage that produces the oneness? Thus, if a man and woman are living together, even for years, there is no biblical oneness. Because that's a theory, right? That's a, that's a point. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to see David shaking his head. David knows the answer. We don't see the answer here clearly, but we see it elsewhere in Scripture. First Corinthians 6, we see this answer. Paul addresses this. And let me start at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So there is a truth to the fact that mere physical union through sex is producing that oneness. Paul states it very clearly here. But... Is that the fullness of the oneness that's intended in Genesis, intended in the creation and the marriage mandate? Of course not. This is a false oneness. It's a hollow oneness. It's a materialistic oneness and a very hurtful oneness. It's not what God had intended So see, Paul emphasizes this, and let me go on from there. He says, the two shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So see, now Paul is making the illustration, moving from the physical to the spiritual. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So, see, God owns us, body and spirit. We are his property. So, we no longer own ourselves. There's also more commentary on this by Paul in the very next chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7. Let's start reading at verse 3. He's taught, this whole chapter on 7 is about husbands and wives. So starting at verse 3, he says this, "'Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, "'and likewise also the wife to her husband.'" "'The wife does not have authority over her own body.'" but the husband does. Now, the Jews were fine up to this point. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, we'd already said that God owns us, right? And so we are loaned these bodies and these spirits by God. He owns us, lock, stock, and barrel. And yet, in this renting that we do on this earth, God gives us certain subleasing options. And so when we marry, we are subleasing our bodies to our spouses. Our bodies are no longer ours. Our wife has the discretion over our bodies as a husband. And we husbands have the discretion over our wife's bodies. Go tell a liberal that tomorrow. They will scoff at this. As I was researching this, you can't help but go and seek some things on on the Internet, and there are so many feminists out there spouting the feminist agenda on their feminist blogs. It's just horrendous, the, the lies that you see out there. Now, maybe, hopefully, you regard what I just said, though, as beautiful. The husbands own the wives' bodies. The wives own the husbands' bodies. Do we truly exercise those rights, however? Or do we exercise them with caution? As husbands, does your wife truly regard you as owning her body? You husbands, do you really view your wife as owning your body? Or do we resist this? I believe... We live in such an egalitarian time that we just, it's in the air you breathe, that we have a natural resistance to this level of abdication of self. And it's wrong, it's unbiblical. You ought to rethink this. Just what you own and what your wife owns. Just what you wives own versus what your husbands own. Because you own one another. Oneness of union is a process. This marriage that we're in is a process. And recently, I was fortunate enough to read a really great blog which commented on the fact that a marriage is a modes of transportation, not a destination. Beautiful way of putting it. We are always en route to a better marriage or a worse one. It just depends on which direction you're heading. As is often said here, we started coining this phrase a few years ago, it's not about perfection, it's about direction. Are you willing to submit to the Lord? You don't have to be perfect, but you really must be going in the right direction. And if you're not, you're going to fight wise counsel that directs you in the right way. I want to cover three Ps of marriage. And the three Ps are this. The propriety of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and the picture of marriage. I can't possibly exhaust this topic and it's not my intention to do so i'm just going to give you a smattering of the bible's wisdom on the matter of marriage and husbands and wives we know marriage was instituted by god in the garden of eden god said in genesis 2:18, it is not good that man should be alone i will make him a helper suitable to him He'd said already in 128, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1 is just this kind of summary context of creation involving the creation of woman. And then Genesis 2 obviously goes into more detail on how that was worked out. God instituted marriage as normative for man and woman. And I used normative in a work meeting a few weeks ago, and people just looked at me. What does that mean? normative. Does that mean normal? And I'm just like, uh, not really, but I'm just going to let it go at that. And so I didn't really feel like defending the use of the word normative. And frankly, in our culture, it's not an easy term to defend because normative implies a designer. Normative implies that what you're seeing is not consistent with what it ought to be. Normal fluctuates. Normal is whatever is today more popular. It's what the 51% have said today is normal. But it wasn't normal 10 or 20 years ago. It was abnormal then, but now suddenly it's normal, just because people have voted. So when we talk about marriage, we're talking about what God has instituted as normative, not just normal. A few weeks ago, I noticed when the birds started coming back into our lawn, the behavior of the cardinals. It was, uh, I felt, a beautiful illustration of what in the Bible would regard, be regarded as normative uh, between mates. So I would see uh, a female, like on our deck, you know, the female cardinals, they're not as pretty, they're not as red, they're kind of this mottled red, very pretty in their own right, but yet as compared to the male with that huge bright red head, it's just, you know, she kind of pales by comparison. And so I see the female cardinal I'm like oh there's a female cardinal and then I'd spot the male and he'd be up in the tree and then I noticed pretty much consistently after that every time I'd spot a pair the female was on the ground and the male was in the tree kind of like in the role of protector watching over that female and at one point there were two males in the tree and I thought hmm you know maybe this is not a set uh, situation here. Maybe the, the female has not yet selected which of these males. And so the males were kind of, you know, chasing one another from tree to tree. And I don't know if the husband, let's call him, was defending her from this interloper or whether they were still vying for her affections. And I don't know if cardinals make for life. I don't. I doubt it. But see, that's normal in the animal world. We don't speak of what's in the animal world is normative. Now, all of it's normative, really, by God's design, but yet we don't take that as normative for us, for people. But there are wonderful illustrations. And so just this morning, my wife called me down. She said, Roddy, there are ducks in the backyard. And so last Sunday, and then again this Sunday, this pair of mallard ducks show up, and they're waddling all through our yard over like a half-hour period. And Again, you could see this normative behavior. Now, they do mate for life. And so you've got this male mallard duck who, you know, he's very cool looking. You know, he's very pretty. he got the green head and the brown chest, and he's just kind of strutting around. And the female is almost always about a foot and a half, two feet ahead of him. Now, you think it might be like they're at the mall, and like the man is just, you know, walking along mindlessly behind his wife. But I don't think that's the case with these mallard ducks. I think the male is just on the lookout. He's allowing her to go around. And I was telling Tabitha, I have a theory. I don't know. I haven't seen it enough. But sometimes he would be farther away from her than that. And I think what he was doing is he's standing there like, okay, you're not supposed to go too far that way. You're not supposed to go too far that way. And so he wouldn't track with her. He'd let her get like five, six, seven, eight feet away, and she'd be over there eating, looking for insects, obviously. And then they'd start going this way. Sometimes he would start leading, but then he would almost always let her get ahead of him immediately. I believe it's a beautiful illustration of a male protecting his female in the position of protector in that situation. To me, that's normative, but you can't look at all things in the world as normative, obviously. I'd hate to be a male black widow spider, for instance. So, propriety in marriage. God has designed it, and he's given us roles in it. So then we have the purpose of marriage. What is the purpose of marriage? Now, for a long time, the church regarded, and especially the Roman Catholic Church, regarded the purpose of marriage, procreation. If you have to have sex, you really ought not enjoy it that much. It's only for the purpose of procreation. And so that really has prevailed and often come and gone throughout the history of the church. It's just there's way too much pleasure in sex. It's obviously not right that there's so much pleasure in it. So there's some sinful component that you really ought not to indulge in if you don't have to. And so really past menopause, it's often practiced in some churches. No, you ought not be having sex now. That's wrong. Because now obviously it can't be for the purpose of Uh, procreation. But thankfully, you know, Augustine came along, others have come along, the reformers came along, and it's like, no, you've got it wrong. And see, what the Roman Catholics would look to is Genesis 128. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is the role of man and woman. But yet, in the expansion, the commentary on that creation of woman, there is another phrase, and you know what it is. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will find, make him a helper, helper comparable to him. So see, there's a reason God created woman that doesn't have to do just with procreation. It's about togetherness. It's about companionship. Augustine had said that the three benefits of marriage were offspring, faith, and sacrament. And he said that sacrament was the most important one because a marriage may not produce offspring, a marriage may not result in increased faith even, but a marriage that prevails does reflect sacrament or covenantal union. It reflects that ongoing bond between the man and the wife. Now, uh, some of you uh, who uh, had seen a post I put on Facebook a long time ago, a couple years ago maybe, uh, know this, and I was reading at the time a book entitled Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. And early on in the book, he is asked a question by his brother because he'd just gotten married. You know, Gary Thomas had just gotten married, and his brother said, well, what do you think? What's marriage like? And so he was very careful in his response, and he said this, if you want to be free to serve Jesus, there's no question. Stay single. Marriage takes a lot of time, but if you want to become more like Jesus, I can't imagine any better thing for a man to do than to get married. Being married forces you to face some character issues you'd never have to face otherwise. And I believe that's wise advice, and it points to this huge benefit to marriage, and that is that it forces sanctification upon us, whether we want it or not. Whether we like it or not, you won't always enjoy it, but you will benefit from it. A few years ago in the CPC, now, long ago, when I took elder training with Phil and we went through all the material, went through the Bible, uh, Phil had shared his view that an elder ought to be married. Not, not that an elder uh, ought to be married, that a, an elder must be married. That you can't be an elder if you're not married, you're not qualified. Because really the text in the Bible says that an elder is to be the husband of one woman. The husband of one woman. Now, what many now take that to mean, though, that, oh, if a man is married, he's only have one wife. Now, in the context in which Paul wrote that, that was important. It was not entirely uncommon for men to have more than a wife back then. But yet, Phil had always taken it to mean, no, an elder must be married. And that must be a biblical marriage, a monogamous marriage. But then a few years ago, we were uh, approached with a, a candidate to enter into the CPC as an elder who was a single man, had always been a single man, essentially intended to remain a single man. And while we had reservations accepting that man into the CPC, we thought, well, he's not coming into our church. He's coming into another church where obviously those elders believe this is acceptable, But that man was very immature, and he flamed out as an elder very quickly. He was not active in the CPC for more than six months before he kind of stomped the dust off his feet and walked away from the CPC. I think we were right in our perspective that an elder is to be the husband of one wife because that man did not reflect the level of sanctification necessary to be an elder in God's church. And we never really did have the talk after that. But if it comes up again, we will have that talk because I don't think any of us are willing to allow another single man to come in and be an elder in the CPC not without putting up a fight. It's just not right. That's our perspective. That's how we believe the Bible tells it. So now we've covered propriety of marriage, the purpose of marriage, that's manifold, and now we'll cover the picture of marriage. The Use of marriage as an analogy in Scripture is pervasive. Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament uses the analogy of divorce quite freely. The analogy of a wife cheating on her husband quite colorfully, quite brutally at times. God used marriage, the actual act of marriage, to prove points in Hosea's life, in Ezekiel's life. I mean... It's just marriage is used by God extensively in the Old Testament. Jeremiah comments on God giving Israel a writ of divorce, and that's in Jeremiah 3. And let me read this to you. It's Jeremiah 3, verses 1 and then 6 and 8. They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, and yet you return to me, says the Lord. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and on every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said after she had done all these things, Return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So the harlotry is obviously with idols, demonic worship and service. And so God Uh, condemns that in very strong terms by saying that he divorced Israel, gave her a writ of divorce, banished her away, and yet now Judah has refused to heed. This southern kingdom is following in her footsteps. And then in the New Testament, Jesus repeatedly refers to the church as his bride. In Revelation, uh, what Phil will get to eventually, uh, we read of the marriage supper of the Lamb, new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, adorned as for the wedding that is imminent between Christ and his bride. So now before we go on, that's the three. That's the picture of marriage. I covered that pretty quickly. But you have propriety of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and the picture of marriage. But now I want to give just some background thoughts on men and women, just as especially as our culture views them. Now we know God made men and women different, and to a great extent, our culture accepts the fact That men and women are different. They just give different reasons for the differences. Modernists regard uh, masculinity and femininity as just essentially a side effect of chemicals and hormones. And while for centuries, millennia, they would say that masculinity has dominated the world, femininity is on the rise, and femininity is better. And so there is a concerted effort to feminize the cultures of the world, and they're largely successful, and they would appear to be continuing to be successful because masculinity got us to where we are. They just can't take us farther. What's interesting, though, is that at the same time, we're bringing women into the military, essentially adopting greater masculinity in order to be able to participate on an equal level with men, And so we're blurring the distinctions between masculinity and femininity, but that's okay because we're just animals anyway that evolved to this state. And so we can probably, even perhaps through chemicals, better living through chemicals, force masculinity and femininity to converge. Then we'll be like frogs, right? A frog can be male or female. And So depending on the population in the lake, you just, you know, suddenly you need more females? Hey, the next batch of frogs are now females. So see, that's the world we live in. That's the really warped, topsy-turvy views of people in our world. And yet, uh, husbands and wives, the role of family in our world has prevailed for millennia, but is rapidly declining throughout the world. And so even cultures that were fairly, largely untouched by Christianity, such as uh, all of China, that for hundreds and hundreds of years, for millennia, still propagated an ethic pretty much predicated on the Bible. Yet again, that's all falling by the wayside. And yet, I, I don't say this to give you any cause for worry or despair. Uh, the degree to which a society drifts from god's design is the degree to which and the speed with which they will fail so none of this will succeed it's all silliness and so god's word god's design will prevail must prevail because god will not tolerate all of this absurdity so a complex process as a designer and god has designed this complex process we call society And so God will continue to regulate society by his design, and our designs will be washed away when they're so unethical, when they're so immoral, and they're founded on such bad reasoning as evolution produces. Now, I want to go back to the Bible, and I want to uh, comment on three pairs of words that describe husbands and wives. The majority of this is from uh, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and yet a little bit of it also I'll bring in from Proverbs. Let me read the text, and then I'll introduce the three pairs of words. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, "'Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church "'and gave himself for her, "'that he might sanctify and cleanse her "'with the washing of water by the word, "'that he might present her to himself a glorious church, "'not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, "'but that she should be holy and without blemish. "'So husbands ought to love their own wives "'as their own bodies. "'He who loves his wife loves himself, "'for no one ever hated his own flesh.' but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So now I want to give you these three pairs of words. And I had hoped to find an illustration for each, but that would be really hard and time-consuming, and I couldn't find them. And so what I've done is I have two illustrations that I think summarize everything. The first word pair, and this will be very common to those of you who have either read the book or seen the DVD series that Gary has shared, Love and Respect. The Egritches produced the book and the DVD series. So see, husbands are to love their wives Wives are to respect their husbands. And he speaks of how important both of these are, that if a husband refuses to love his wife, how cold their relationship can become. And if a wife refuses to respect her husband, how embittered he can become towards her. The next set is lead and submit. The husbands are to lead their wives and their homes, and the wives are to submit to this. And yet, women are a man's, our wives are our most valuable allies in this. They are our helper. They are our counselor. Yet, there is a distinction between helpful advice and stubborn opposition. And so, the husband and wife might have a different perspective on that in each specific situation. And you have to work through that. The last word pair sacrifice and encourage. Husbands are to lead sacrificially, and wives are to build up their husbands, not tear them down. And this is where I want to draw in from Proverbs from the Virtuous Woman chapter. It says, She does her husband good and not evil all the days of his life. All of us have probably seen examples of poor marriages where the husbands and wives just lob grenades at one another verbal grenades all the time and it's normal for them i can remember the first time that happened tabitha and i were newly married and we went to a a a party at a friend's house who i worked with and we couldn't believe the vitriol that came out of that woman she just kept picking on her husband picking on her husband picking on her husband i wasn't surprised within a year year and a half they were divorced i mean it was just obviously coming she had no respect for him And even in the midst of huge parties, she's running him down, running him down, running him down. Uh, Husbands won't put up with that forever, although husbands in our present culture tend to be the more uh, patient ones. Initiated uh, divorces, two-thirds women nowadays, one-third men. And oftentimes the men will admit that the marriage is in poor condition and that they would have been happy, though, to see it stick it out Whereas the woman initiates the divorce, even at 50, 55, 60 years old, women are divorcing their husbands. They just no longer want to be uh, within the same house as these men. Now, I want to end with two stories. Those are kind of bad news things. I realize our culture's kind of messed up, and yet I want to illustrate good marriages. And this one actually has both a negative tone and a positive tone. And this is from God's little devotion book for dads. A tyrannical husband once demanded that his wife conform to a rigid set of standards of his own choosing. She was to do certain things for him as a wife, keep house a certain way, dress a certain way, treat her children a certain way, speak and act in public a certain way. She tried to please her husband, but over time she came to hate his list of rules and regulations. Not surprisingly, she soon grew to hate him. Then one day the man died, an act of God's mercy as far as the wife was concerned. Sometime later she fell in love with another man and married him. To her surprise, she found that she and her new husband seemed to be on a perpetual honeymoon. Joyfully, she devoted herself to his good welfare One day, while cleaning out a box in the attic, she came across the sheet of do's and don'ts her first husband had written for her to follow. To her amazement, she realized, she was doing for her second husband all the things her first husband had demanded, even though her new husband had never once suggested them. She had been giving as an expression of love, not out of obedience to a demand, love and serve your wife and you're likely to receive all the tender, loving care you can receive. This is from a devotional. We are, as husbands and wives, both called to be all in and all for our spouse, support, encourage, love, sacrifice, all of that. And I remember hearing once uh, a, uh, a man give wisdom on this, and he said that uh, it's not enough to do 50-50. He said... You know, you'll all have to give 100%. It isn't that 50-50 add up to 100. 100 and 100 add up to 100. Now, I think in binary, and uh, I see it like this. I, hopefully you can see that. It might be big enough. H is for husband. W is for wives. And so, see here, the husband is not in at all. So it starts with zero. He's like a loser, total loser, bad husband. And so the wife could be all out of it, too, or she could be all in. And then here the husband is all in, but then the wife is not, and then the wife is. And so see, zero, one, one, two, if you just think of it like that, multipliers. And this is where the successful one is, obviously. But even though I like binary, and even though I think it's very useful, it isn't typically reflective of reality. It might work in JK flip-flops and electronic equipment, but it doesn't tend to work for life. So I have modified this diagram. And so instead I've given percentages, husbands and wives. I think about the best we can shoot for is 80%, don't you? I I think it's really hard to maintain 80%. I think 80% is passing. I know that that doesn't scale with grades and stuff, like an A is 93 or above or whatever. But at work, when I'm assessing code quality and and from month to month, 80% for me is passing. If guys can get it to 80%, complete 80% of their work, 80% sufficient, efficient, I'm happy with that. So then, see, 88664422. But see, we know that the permutations go on and on. What I want to point out, though, is this it really doesn't matter as much where you are as which direction you're heading. So if you think you're at 0.5 and you're heading down or your wife thinks you're heading down, it's hard for her to go up. You're not making it easy on her to respect you, to submit to you. But if you are climbing, if you are loving sacrificially, then it will be much easier for her to go up. And I put the husband over here on the left for the purpose that he's the leader. He's the one that really is driving this or should be one of the qualities he's supposed to exhibit is leadership, and if he's not, it's not going to help here. It will reflect poorly on him if he's not a good leader. So see, we must be both all in. I want to give you this next story, and I think it reflects all of the best of godly character in husbands and wives. This reflects the roles of husbands and wives. And this is from another book. I really can't recommend the book. It's not that good, but it had this really good story in it. It's called The Making of a Man by Richard Exley. In March 1990, Dr. Robertson McQuilkin announced his resignation as president of Columbia Bible College in order to care for his wife, who was suffering from the advanced stages of Alzheimer's. In his resignation letter, he wrote, "'My dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health "'for about eight years. "'So far I have been able to care for her ever-growing needs as, "'as well as my leadership responsibilities here at CBC. "'But recently it has become apparent "'that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me "'and almost none of the time I am away from her. "'It is not just discontent. "'She is filled with fear, even terror,' that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she cannot get to me, so it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. This decision, his resignation, was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. There is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to so relish, her happy spirit, and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. And then the author goes on to say this, It would be a mistake for us to assume that Dr. McQuilkin's decision was an isolated choice, independent of the hundreds of lesser choices that went into their 42 years of marriage. A decision of that magnitude is the culmination of a lifelong series of smaller daily decisions. And as such, it challenges every man to examine the choices he makes each day and the way he relates to his wife. Now, this story is especially poignant for Tabitha and me because it's what her father and mother are going through right now. Her mother has had declining health now for two or three years and suffering Alzheimer's, and she has regressed. To a childlike state, and it's a full-time job for her husband to care for her now. And yet, he's doing that, uh, and largely uncomplaining. He's doing that. He doesn't really expect um, other people to feel sorry for him. He's just doing what he knows to be right. So let me reiterate what I'd covered as just the highlights of husbands and wives' duties and responsibilities. Husbands are to exercise loving, sacrificial leadership of their wives and their families. Wives are to respond to their husbands, regardless of whether they do this really well or really poorly, are to respond with encouraging, respectful submission. Now, as I said, the world scoffs at this, but what do you say? And more importantly, what do you do? Because only in obedience to God can we hope to live happily ever after. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word uh, that is filled with wisdom. Uh, Not all of it is easy to employ, especially in a sinful world in which your design has been corrupted and polluted, and we find uh, so many uh, reasons and opportunities to justify our sin, to justify our hardness of heart. And yet we pray, Father, for the sake of our marriages and for the sake of our witness to the unbelievers that we uh, come into contact with, that we would exemplify uh, love, sacrifice, and all that you call us to in living out our lives uh, with our spouses. We thank you, Lord, for the gifts that they are, and we ask you to have us to be so much more appreciative and so much more thankful and consistent in our love of them. We ask you now to be with us, to bless uh, your word to our minds and hearts, that we would seek to do all that is in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.